Thanks to that piece of shit, Lieutenant, that's always uh, on his podcast. Bash us. Yeah. <laughs>
It was in the back of the 4-6 precinct. But now they made it uh, centralized, and it was in police headquarters at 240 Center Street. It was before they even built one PP, one police plaza. So I went there for a year and a half, and uh, I always thought about being a motorcycle cop. That was my thing, you know. Uh, but then once I got on the job, I went to the 4-1. That's where I broke in and stayed for five years. Uh, I really enjoyed working the street, and I gave up the thought of being a motorcycle cop. My dream was to become a, an anti-crime cop. And working in the 4-1, I mean, these guys were unbelievable cops. And every day I'd see certain guys. They were my idols. I'd see them coming every, every day with metals stacked up and bringing in a felony collar every day, robberies, guns, drugs. And the guys I looked up to, ironically, I got into the anti-crime unit about a year and a half later and um, wound up being partners with the guys that were my idols. So I really learned everything in the 4-1. When you break in <clears throat> in a, what they call today, I guess, or over the years, it became what's called a, an A house or a ghetto house or a shit house. Oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to use that oh, language. I, I don't know what the language is on the, the show. But, uh, you know, you're working these ghetto precincts where it's really tough. And if you work there in a, one of those kind of houses, you can work anywhere in the city. You know, you can work somewhere in a, a slow house and it would be equivalent to like 20 years uh, if you did like four years in the in the four one, it's like twenty years in the slow house. You see violence all around you, collars, uh, people that have disregard for human life, and it goes on a daily basis. When I got into the four one, when I first got to a radio car on a Friday and Saturday night, they're backed up with thirty jobs. You take over a radio car with the light and siren on, and you go your whole eight hours like that, and you turn over the car with the light and siren on. It's just amazing. And the stuff you see, it's just beyond unbelievable. And your daily, your normal citizens of New York or any major city really don't know what police see and what they go through. You know, it's a, it's a big thing. I grew up in the Bronx and here I am working maybe two miles away and it's another world that I never knew about. When I grew up, it was all Italian, Irish, and Jewish. And uh, we didn't you know, have this kind of violence around us. We didn't know it existed, and it's only maybe two miles away on the other side of the borough. I'm in the North Bronx. This was the South Bronx. And you you see this disregard for human life and the drugs, how they're eating up the people in the city. You just can't imagine. I thought I was in another country or another universe. Ralph, yeah, I mean, we're honored that you're on. I mean, you're an absolute legend in the police. I'm department. honored to be on. Thank you for having me on. No, I mean, no, you, you're guys, are, you, you know. guys are well-respected lieutenants and guys on the job. You were both active guys. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe some of your listeners don't or some new cops, guys that have less than four years, have no idea of the kind of police work that was done back in the day because they don't let them be cops today. They have the better training today. They have men and women. They're lucky to have men and women that want to do the job. They have better technology and training. And they don't let them do police work. It's a really a shame. What, what would you say is the biggest difference you see now in the young recruits that came out from opposed to when you came out? Well, I think when we came, when I came on, I wasn't a, um, a veteran, but we had a lot of veterans came on, and they were 
you know, they were disciplined and trained. Uh, I think overall, today's cops are smarter because they use the police department as a, they know in the academy their retirement date. They know they're going to have second careers. When I came on, that was your life. They used to say, you're a rookie for 20 years. You know, guys, it was very common for guys to be on 35, 40 years. Today, it's a rarity. And I think in my day, the cops were tougher. But today, they're smarter with the technology, the training, and just the way the world evolved with, you know, moving on. But I think we had a tougher class of cops. <clears throat> and the biggest change in the police department that I could see today is the department is ran by politicians who know nothing about police work. Nothing. It's like I, I equate it to like going into a hospital and you're going to get heart surgery and you have the janitor running the surgeons. It's just ridiculous. You need police commanders who have training, experience, and have done the job and know the streets. You got to promote from within. And these politicians, when I was on, politicians would address the uh, troops before turning out, and they would tell you, go out there and lock up bad guys. They backed us up. The bosses backed us up. They wanted this job done. They wanted policing. And they didn't mind if you had a heavy hand. I came on during the NAP Commission. And the NAP Commission was something that was televised daily. They were arresting officers of every rank uh, because of the corruption from the 50s and the 60s. And they didn't want to have any part of that anymore. So they um, had these NAP commissions that was ran by a judge, NAP, and they were arresting guys. And they didn't, they, if you, they, someone said you took a dollar, you were going downtown five times. But if they said you used brutality, it wasn't considered brutality. It was the, the heavy hand of the law. And if you touched the uniform or fought with a cop or disrespected a cop, then you got what was coming to you. And no one minded. We used to have, I mean, I know they have cops on the desk today. The desk, which is the precinct for your audience, was always ran by a lieutenant. The lieutenant was, it was always an old Irish guy who knew how to straighten out the troops and told you what to do and how to do it. And if someone came in to make a complaint, I mean, this is funny, but this is how it was. The lieutenant would do the same thing. He's always writing in the blotter. And if someone came in to complain about a cop, they, they, the lieutenant would cup his ear like this and say, what'd you say? What'd you say? The guy would lean into the desk and then the lieutenant would hit him over the head with the blotter and tell the cop in the prison, throw this bum out, you know? And that's how it was. But <clears throat> people in the street, violent criminals, the only thing they understand is violence. And that's how you got to deal with them. And we were taught that is, as in the academy, it was a four month course then. They didn't have psychological courses and training. We did a four-month course that was broken up into learning the law and what you could do and not do and the Constitution and the penal law. And the other half was physical fitness. And all they taught you was how to use a nightstick and how to cuff someone and taught drilling in your head that no matter what happens, you come out on top. If someone touches the uniform, you crush them. You know, that's not prohibited. You know, it's prohibited to touch it, the uniform. You know, you... And if someone used violence against you, if they used your hand, their hands, you use a stick. If they use a stick, you use a gun. You know, and this is how it was. And the public loved it. The bosses loved it. And the politicians loved it. And that's how we were brought up, trained. 
Today, they look at it like we're doing something wrong. But that's what we were taught and told and trained and paid to do. We were paid to protect the public. I absolutely love love everything that you're saying, your response here. First of all, I see so many commonalities between yourself and me and John. Right? Arguably. You guys were on. 20 over 20 years ago you're only out like that's right two or so. so you came on when you could still police were doing police work but just imagine it 56 years ago when i was on oh absolutely so i, I mean that's been 40 our... years out but i was on, yeah that's you know back from 68 and they were tough cops back then and everybody appreciated it you know if you if they if you did what they want you to do today you would be frowned upon and today if I did what I did, I'd be frowned upon. You know what I mean? Because yeah. back then we did real policing. But the city should be thankful. Everyone should be thankful that there's men and women still want to do this job today. And they're trained so well and have better equipment, but they don't let them do policing. But somehow the politicians were infiltrated with liberals and stuff, and then they infiltrated the bosses and took over the department. And I don't know how that happened. But it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the public or the police. Law enforcement has taken a severe blow over this. And in oh, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. I mean, that's been our position. What John and I say, especially on this podcast, is that it wasn't until a short time ago that you could actually be a cop. We could do what we were paid and trained to do. But really, the turning point was 2018 when the Blasio really, really got into the thick of it and. There well, was a climatic change. Liberal, and he was. Oh, you know, oh yeah, people, absolutely. They hate cops. You know, he was arrested, De Blasio, prior to being mayor. He was arrested for demonstrations and stuff. His daughter was arrested. Uh, you know, it's like perpetrators infiltrated the good. The bad guys infiltrated the good guys. Well, absolutely. Well, you and I have a lot of commonalities. Also, I've been coined as the most complaint cop, arguably. I probably have the most amount of substantiated complaints. No, but as far as allegations, as far as allegations, all that tells you me might have me beat. You're a good street cop. You're doing the job. If you're in the precinct uh, doing nothing, you're not going to get a complaint. We know that. It's an honor to hear that come from you. I want to ask you this. The Blasio started something. I'm sure you guys know it. But you know that if any perpetrator who got arrested said that they you uh, use brutality or you hit them or smack them right they they gave them between twelve hundred and fifteen hundred dollars they settled the cases immediately there was you didn't even have to go through the process it was a settlement so if you took a cow they turned it into being a collar was a job you know de blasio then they started with the self with the um the cell phones with the cameras now it's body cameras now it's paperwork up the ass it's they're just doing anything to prevent and I, decent people respect cops. You know, it's always been the squeaky wheel theory. You know, like if one wheel, it's the, one, the, the small amount of people are the most vocal. But that's the squeaky wheel. But 75%, you know, appreciate, more than that, appreciate police and what we're doing or what cops are doing today. You know, they, you know, they respect police and law enforcement. But it's the How squeaky funny wheel that gets the attention. I mean, anyone can say, I, yeah, I love the police. I like being protected. <laughs> no one prints that in the paper. You know. I, I always use that line. I always say the squeaky wheel gets the oil. John hears me say it all the time. That's I really funny. believe in that. 
Well, you see, that's what it is. It's the truth. And you know it, I know it, people know it. But that vo that loud vocal crowd that's anti-cop gets the attention. Yeah. You know? Well, I want to say this. I want to make a comparison, right? So when you were on the job, you didn't even have radios at this point. I'm at not even sure point, that... When we first started. Then the point I, I don't even out, and they hardly worked anyway. I don't even think you were wearing vests yet. But if you made the comparison to... Right? Were you wearing body armor at that point? What's that? Say that again? Were you wearing body armor? Did you have a vest at that point? No, there were no vests. And just to tell you, in 19... It was probably around 73. I was in anti-crime. And my unit, the 4-1 anti-crime unit, we bought our own vests. And we put them in the cars, but they were very, very heavy. Because later on, I bought. I have a vest now. It's nothing like I wore. I donated it to um, um, the military, my vest. Uh, I actually, the one they gave us later years and one I bought. We bought, our unit bought our own 20 vests and we bought 20 shotguns from a, a sporting goods right around the corner, Harry Sporting Goods. And then we had them sent back. They were 12 gauge breech load, 12 gauge breech load. I still have it right on my wall here. And we sent them back to... Uh, uh, Savage Arms was, uh, and we had them sawed down to legal length, 18 inches, and we had the center filled in, and we all bought them ourselves, and we carried them around because we were hunting the BLA back then, on duty, off duty. I had their pictures on my nightstand. I had it on my desk. I had it in my cars. I mean, I, like people would have their pictures of their wives or, or daughters or sons. I had pictures of BLA all over the place because I really wanted to catch them. I was very close on two occasions, but I never never ran into him. Ralph, we had uh, Randy Jurgensen on. Can you just explain? I know Randy. You know Randy, right? Could you just explain to the audience what the, the, the BLA is? The BLA was Black Liberation Army. Believe it or not, it was a violent, more violent group. It was an offshoot of the Black Panthers. And, he, and they broke off for them because they thought the Black Panthers weren't violent enough. And they went after law enforcement all over the country doing bombings, uh, assassinations, ambushes. Uh, they specifically, believe it or not, went after black and white teams. They always wanted to get a black cop and a white cop together. And they would call in false uh, calls, mostly domestic calls. And then they would get the cops there and just ambush them and kill them. And they uh, struck a lot of times in New York. And they killed a lot of cops. And they wounded and maimed a lot of cops. They were cripples. And they did... Uh, they were really bad people. They were most violent criminals that you could come up They were wanted by the FBI, all law enforcement agencies. And they struck from New York to California. And we would hunt them all the time. They were like, you know, equivalent to us, get, like the FBI getting one of, uh, one of the most wanted, like the 10 most wanted. And they were probably on some of the most wanted. Uh, one of them still wanted today and is shielded by Cuba. Um, the girl. Uh, my, my, my mind just went blank on her name. Uh, she has Chesmark. Name. Ches Joanne, Joanne Chesmark. Yeah, um, you know, these were the most violent people they were. You know, you know they were ambushing the law enforcement. Ralph, what's interesting to me is that when you got on the job, it was a basic uniform, but it wasn't a basic mindset. You guys had that street cop mentality. You were New York City kids. In comparison to now, the cops that we see now, they have vests, they have body cameras, they have 
state-of-the-art radio equipment. They have state-of-the-art computers in the car. They have the up-to-date, most integral technology to do the job because as the job evolves, as the world evolves and policing evolves, and so does crime, the police evolve with it. But what we say is different is the mindset. If we lost that masculinity, it's been my argument well, that Candace Sessman is seeking meek, timid, and docile. What is your position? Do you see that the mindset has changed? Do you see that we're, we have different people getting on the job? Because of three reasons. Three. Uh, one is, like we said, the, uh, uh, the politicians changing the atmosphere, who would change the bosses on the top echelon of the police department. The second one is the training is different in the academy, how they're indoctrinated. And the other one is you guys. You see how you guys had to leave the job? The job is losing train. You're more valuable than technology. You pass on. That's how I was broken in because the old timers taught me. They knew the street. And, you know, you learn some stuff in the academy. I learned some things that were great. And you learn I, some of the things I'll tell you later that saved my life. But you get broken into a precinct. Like I said, we didn't have NSU or street or cops training or specialists, but the old timers would pull up, tell you, and you gradually met them and worked with them. And then you got into a car and then they, you, they were with you, even though they weren't with you. You know what I'm talking about. But you guys, like guys like you who had 20 years on, passed on all this knowledge. And we don't have that today because guys are leaving. Everyone leaves at 20. You know, it's 20 and out. They they know this date. They know the minute when they're in the academy. When I came on, it was a lot. I never, I tell you right from the beginning, I didn't even know there was a forced out date. But when I did learn that, I said, I'm going to be forced out, you know, at 63. You know, I thought I'm going to be on until I'm 100. I, I feel like it. Well, I can't do the job today, not because of my health or shape, but because of the way it's ran today. But it was a, it's the mindset, how you're trained. It's the academy training and then the training you meet with experienced officers on the street, like the guys I looked up to that were my heroes. And these are guys like you. And you guys are examples that the job got so bad today that you had to leave. You had to leave because you can't do well, they forced us all out. <laughs> they forced us out, literally, and they forced out thousands of guys. Because they don't want if that goes with the training and the mindset of the politicians and the big bosses. They don't want dinosaurs on the job who know how to do the job. They don't want you to pass on that knowledge. They want the people that they're molding their way in today's society, which is a liberal society. Ralph. Uh, like I'm pretty political. Like I get involved a lot in politics. Me too. Me too. I talk about how the politics affects legislation, how the legislation affects the policy, how that ultimately affects public safety. What do you think the big? Like I know there's a far left twinge in 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 New York City right now, and it's, it's well, New York City is known for that in California. You know, but, they're the worst. But what would you say when you like like for for us? I feel like the the Democrats now have been anti police. Did you have that feeling when you were a cop, or did you feel like Democrats and Republicans were both had had a strong public safety platform? Like what, what they was your- both had a strong safety and more, all working people just about you know 
well, Democrats, Democrats. Today, we don't have Democrats. To me, it's far right and far left. Well, there's logical, you know, is the right, but they, they, the left is too far. The Democrats became liberals, you know, and real Democrats are more conservative. You know, Democrats used to be in the middle and it represented the working class, but it's absolutely no more like, it's not like that anymore at all, in my opinion. You know, anything I say is really my opinion, but I don't think there is a Democrat. The real Democrats of my era don't exist. They went too far left. We were infiltrated by um, liberal, far left liberals, you know? Ralph, you said something before that's very interesting. And we've seen the change now. You grew up in an area where it's Jewish, we both share that, Irish, Italian kids, who were taking this job. They had that street toughness, but so close by was the black community where there was just an extreme amount of violence. Unfortunately, the culture of these neighborhoods and here you are, you're taking this job to help out these communities, which is the same thing that's going on now. What do you see that's going on with the Democrats? How do you feel about how they are, in, in our opinion, they're not helping the black community. They're only not further a, hurting them to deteriorate their public want, safety. The Democrats want two, two, um, two types of people. They want the very poor. They're trying to break down the, dem the middle class now. And they want to be the elite and they want to control us. Everything they do is trying to be controlling. You know, they're trying to change the money now, uh, digital money. They made you wear a mask. They made us do stuff that if you think about it now, you'll laugh when I tell you that. Do you remember you had to go in a supermarket and they had arrows on the floor? Which way you're going to walk up the aisle? This is going to save your life. You know, I wasn't a mask wearing guy and I purposely walked the wrong way in the supermarket. You know, <laughs> but this is, you know, but this is like, this is all control. They were. They control us. See, now, different with society today also is social media. You know, I see it with my nephews. I see it with all young people. They stay in the house all day, and they're playing on the machines, and they're on Instagram and Twitter and Twitter and all this other stuff where we were out in the street playing, you know, stickball, ring alivio, football, baseball, racing cars, you know, working. They don't even want to work today. People don't even want to work. You know, this, this whole society is screwed up. That's why the good guys became the bad guys. And the bad guys, they want to build statues of George Floyd. You know, a career criminal. You know, it's just, it's topsy-turvy. It's a bizarre world. No, it's insane. And you, you spoke a lot about mindset. Could you just put us in the mindset when you're a seasoned cop? You're out there. Like, what's your mindset? What does Ralph Freeman do? Well, he goes in in the morning, and like, what's what, what's your ethos? Like, what what do you look? Well, at? my mindset was first of all, I always think in police work you should be physically fit. But I was into physical fitness before the job. But I really took it seriously then. And we were trained in the academy, like going back to the academy, like I told you, we were trained to be like in a warrior mindset. And when I got into anti-crime, forget about it. You know, like. You had to be ready for action. You had to be ready. I went the job. It was a serious, a serious thing. I mean, I know I could get hurt. I didn't feel like getting killed, but I know getting hurt was part of the job, you know, and I had a lot of line of duty injuries. I broke my hand three times, had my skull fractured twice. Uh, I can't tell you how many toes and fingers I broke. And uh, 
when my last incident where I was forced off, not forced off, I, I got out on a pre-corded medical, I had 23 broken bones. I shattered my hip in 100 pieces, broke my pelvic left, right, upper, and lower, 23 broken bones in one shot. So I can't even add up all the time. But the mindset was that you're risking your lives for people that you don't know, which back then was appreciated, uh, at least appreciated more and shown publicly. But you're dealing with violent criminals, and you're going to get hurt if you don't have that mindset. And uh, I feel that most anti-crime cops, they're the, they're the more active cops. I mean, street cops are really active, but then there's anti-crime is more of the cream of the crop. And uh, yeah, they were more like a mindset ready of a warrior, that you're dealing with violence, and you got to be ready for it, and you got to be ready to react to it. You know, some people couldn't even... You know, these politicians, they would shit in their pants if they had to go into an alley at two in the morning. You know, they didn't never, they don't even know. They're trying to do ride-alongs, but they're all controlled. You know, I'm, when you went into a back alley or went into a store at night that's closed and you're by yourself or just with your partner in a strange neighborhood uh, at two in the morning, it's a different ball game. People don't understand. You know, the public... They see the cops very different. They see them driving around, having a slice of pizza or drinking coffee or rapping to a girl. But what they don't see, because they're running the other way, is when shots are fired and the cops are running towards it. you got to realize law enforcement is a special breed that would take a bullet for a stranger. They go in it. This ain't like a, an accountant or they could erase something if they make the wrong number or... Uh, you know, you cut a piece of wood. If you're a carpenter, you get another piece of wood, another two. But you make a mistake here, it could cost you your life or you could be a cripple forever. And there's tons of cops that are out there over the course of the country that are cripples. And a lot of cops get killed like every 54 hours or 58 hours there's a cop killed across America. And I can't tell you uh, the numbers with uh, assaults and people getting hurt law enforcement officers, they're doing this as a calling. And people should be thankful for law enforcement and thank them every minute. You know, the people that don't know what's going on are the ones that are sleeping peacefully in their beds because of law enforcement. And Rob, they're, they're the real heroes. Law enforcement uh, firefighters and military are the heroes. When I get real upset and very verbal on Facebook, when I hear them say, an entertainer is a hero or a sports figure. You know, they might be a great athlete, but they ain't no hero. They're catching a ball. The people train seals to catch balls. You know, my dog chases a ball. You know, but, you know, this is how society is today. And I guess that's what we got to live with for right now. But Ralph, people violence have... beats... Ralph, violence beats violence. And... uh we talk, we talk about mindset. I like to stay on with we talk about mindset. I'm sure you've seen these videos that have emerged. This new phenomenon of cops getting assaulted. It's happening well, constantly. Well, that's it's been my opinion. What I said they don't have that mindset yeah. today. Uh, it's not appreciated. It's not respected. And no one's backing them. So, And they're getting trained in the academy to have these different things that we never had. De-escalation. They want you to back up. They want you not to be aggressive. They want you to run away. They want you to use verbal judo stuff. This is, this is crazy to me. And that's why cops are getting hurt. I think cops are getting hurt 
because they're hesitant to take a certain action that they're trained to do, but they're not letting them do. And they know if they take it, they're not going to be backed up and everything's being filmed. They're getting a cup of coffee and there's 30 cameras on them. How could you operate like that? You know, you know, it's, uh, it's ruining the law enforcement profession. It would ruin any profession if someone was sitting on your shoulder micromanaging anything you do. I'm glad you said micromanaging. We, we've, we've identified that as probably the biggest problem going on with the police department, the politicians. It's just weakening the police department as we speak. I don't know how bosses became scared of politicians. What do politicians have to do with police work? How does that step into the equation? Yeah. They, <laughs> what they did is under de Blasio, they put all these civilians in and gave them these these fake titles. They're all walking around with oh, and Adam and Adams is giving them more fake titles. And Adams and, doing more. And, and Adams is worse. Every single job he gives is to a friend or a friend of a friend. Who's incompetent too? It's not even like he's yeah. just hiding them on a shelf. He's giving them like a high-profile job. Absolutely. And, you know, what, what and then they usually get they usually get wrapped up in some turmoil. Go ahead, John. What do you think about Eric Adams? You know, he was a cop. Everyone, everyone always falls back on that, right? Well, he ran on that. I never knew him personally, but okay. I'm very big on Facebook, and I've I've spoken to guys that worked with him, and I've always said, and everything I've heard from any cop, basically, is he's a uh, a cop hating racist. I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, he's 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 made the state like for how many videos well, have shared him? So many people I've spoke to, uh, and I'm I'm talking. I have five thousand people friends on my Facebook page. I have five thousand on my Street Justice page, Street Justice LeBron's page, uh, and I belong to about five hundred groups where I talk. I'm in contact between car groups and law enforcement groups. Uh, I have over. Three, 3 million people that, you know, I'm in contact with that, uh, you know, I reach through Facebook. So I've never heard a good word about Adams, not one ever. Ralph, since we're talking about Adams, right? And you're talking about you're involved in politics. You're obviously you're watching. You're definitely well read and uh, you're super intelligent. And, and my argument has always been, despite college, I don't know. About many people, no, no, but many people <laughs> I have met. No, no, no. But many people I have met who have not attended college are some of the smartest people I've ever met. I went to college myself, and I can tell you that, honestly, some of the smartest people. But with that being said, do you do you think the city was better under de Blasio, which is probably one of the worst mayors ever, or are we worse off under Adams? And if you could tell us why. I would say we're worse off under Adams. I think uh, de Blasio was bad. I mean, really bad. I'm not giving him any credit at all because he was a cop hater too. But Adams, because of the they're dealing with the migrant crisis, and he, you know, he invited all the. I don't. Even, I'm sorry, I even said the word migrant. Uh, I really, I don't even like when people say that. Illegals. They're <laughs> illegals. They <clears throat> every day he's doing stuff for them. He's awarding all these hotel rooms and. They get their laundry done. He just started two days ago. Now they're giving them credit cards, $1,000 credit cards a month. That's like a pension. Cops work their whole career. And he's given it. And he's, he wants to take our health care away. He's a big proponent of that. Uh, he invited all the illegals here. And now he complains about it. Uh, but he doesn't want to complain fully. He doesn't want to come out and say it's Biden's fault. He uses the word 
the administration isn't giving us the money. He should tell the truth. But the migrant thing, the illegals are the worst. It's the, wherever they are, the, the newspapers are playing it down. I talk to cops. I talk to people where they're coming from, their neighborhoods. Uh, they're wrecking the neighborhoods. They're on, banging on doors, begging for money all hours. They're ruining property values. They're committing crime. They're starting drug gangs. They're doing pickpocketing. Uh, every, just like this uh, incident with the lieutenant and the officer that was uh, in that fight and got beat up by the illegals. That was, they were questioning them about uh, pickpocketing squads and stuff and committing these pickpocket crimes on 42nd Street. It's becoming real big. They, they're involved in crime. They're now selling drugs to their own people. Uh, I mean, you're not getting the true story from the newspapers or the multimedia. Absolutely. Ralph, we, uh, so, so I, now that I know that you're, you're, you're one of us and you look at the news every day, we're going to get you on Instagram and we're going to get you on Twitter too. You knew I was one of you guys. From the get-go. Anyone who knows me or heard of me knows where I stand on everything. I don't pull no punches. I tell them like I feel, you know. Like that you wall guys. says it all. Just like you Ralph, guys. that wall says it all. Believe me. <laughs> wow. So, so the the protest settlement agreement. Are you familiar with that? That that Caban. Yeah, the, the one with the George Floyd. They each got like a, a couple of thousand dollars each. But but after that, the the, the police department and Adams agreed to that they're going to have a different type of response to these protests. They took away. Well, that's now we get back into the training and stuff too. Yeah. They took away the powers. You never see a horse at a riot anymore. That was a big thing. Uh, you don't see, uh, there's no more nightsticks. I don't see anyone with nightsticks. I don't see hats and bats. They're putting these officers in total danger. What happened to hats and bats? These are violent people. And these aren't protesters. These are rioters. When you cut off traffic, you do damage, you do, uh, rip down flags, you uh, graffiti buildings, you beat up people, you stop decent people from going home or going to work, emergency vehicles from moving, Police, fire, ambulances. These are not protests. You want to protest? Go in the middle of the city. I don't. I believe in protesting. If you do it where you don't inconvenience other people or commit crimes. Once you commit crimes, you're rioters. You know they look at rioters. Maybe you got to be walking in it. You got to be videoed in and out of a store with a TV on your shoulders. But these are rioters. They're disrupting the city. You want to protest decently? Do it in the center of Central Park. Do it in the middle of a ball field, a public ball field. Not, you don't inconvenience people and stop emergency vehicles. They're endangering everybody in the city. Well, absolutely. You know, Rob, I'm looking at your wall. I can't stop looking at it. It's 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 super impressive. It's amazing. It's I mean, let me see if I give you a scan of it. So, with that being said, hear me out for a second, please. Yes. I see this wall. It's so impressive. It's obvious you and your teams did some amazing, impressive work. Because you can't do it alone. You have to do it as a team. So Absolutely. you said you've been watching. Up, I couldn't beat up the whole Bronx uh, myself. But you said you've been watching the politicians now. And they, the upper management of the police department, who we feel are now politicians, have identified themselves as the dream team. Do you see them as the dream team in comparison to when you guys were doing police work? <laughs> no dream team. But you see, it, you know, even the police department becomes politicians after captain. 
you know, they're like appointed positions. So once they become a captain, it's a whole new ball game, you know, because, you know, you get appointed just like as a detective, but you get appointed and they, they, they're, they're politi- political positions now when you go into inspector, chief inspector, one star, two star, you know, they're all politicians. They got to cater to these politicians in the upper, that is the upper echelon. And that's where it trickles down to the police and the training and everything else involved and the attitudes. Yeah, I mean, I see bosses. I see bosses because I used to be in Manhattan a lot. I'd see bosses driving bosses. Yeah, you see captains driving birds. You know, it, it's it's ridiculous. I seen tra- I seen parades where they got bosses on the street doing uh, traffic duty. Yeah, it's it, we, me and Eric call them the appointed management. We refuse to use the word leadership anymore. Uh, we get beat up a lot about it. A lot of guys, a lot of, we get a lot of attacks. Oh, it's the appointed management, right? Because they hate it. But it really is true. You're the political it's true. It's management true. and you don't have the real voice. You know, we'll never see another, well, I'm not saying never, but in this in this time, we're not going to see another Eric Dim and we're definitely not going to see another Ralph Freeman. Ralph, you've been at 18 shootings. I 15, mean, 15. 15, I'm sorry, 15 shootings. Um... I don't, you know, we wouldn't ask you to walk us through all that. I'm sure that would be whatever. But now, currently, you see guys after, if they're involved in one or two shootings, they're shelf. That's it. Their careers are over. Um, what, well, what, I know they take them off the street. And yeah. right away, they got to go uh, to the hospital for tinnitus. They got to get, I guess, counseling and stuff. And they take them off the street. They do a lot of things. I know, I've, I don't know if you remember this incident. It was about... Oh, probably about a year, over a little over a year ago, uh, they were arresting an illegal uh, for a gun on the street, uniform. And a girl tried to interfere, and she punched the cop a couple of times. And the guy slapped her and knocked her down. That guy, he's a, yeah, he's a friend of a friend of mine. And that guy, nothing, they didn't, they kept him inside since that incident. So technically, he's being punished because he never made a penny overtime again. Wow. And he's still, you know, on the job, and he never made overtime. But this is what they do to you today. I know they even take you off the street today if you have like three or five civilian complaints or something, you know, which is ridiculous. I was only taken off the street once because they felt there might have been some community unrest, and uh, they only kept me indoors for like five weeks. I stayed in the precinct, but it was a shooting where I shot two guys. But it all got straightened out. I, sh- I shot. We were doing a gun buy, and the thing went sideways. And uh, I had to shoot one guy and then kill the other guy. If you want me to walk you through that story, I could. Sure, if you want to. Yeah, I mean, sure. absolutely. Well, we made a, a purse snatch collar, me and my partner, and it was like near the end of the tour. And my partner, you know, he wasn't into overtime. He was an older uh, guy, and he. Uh, he wanted to go home. So I took the collar. <clears throat> so I was processing the collar. And uh, well, a CI of mine came in, a confidential informer. And he came in and gave me a tip that a guy, a bad guy in the neighborhood was selling a gun. So I went in and told my boss was working at the time, the squad commander, the sergeant. I told him about it. And I said, uh, I got a good CI, a really good CI. A guy, you rate your CI's basically for your audience, 
uh, on how good intelligence they give you. If they give you 10 tips and 10, eight, nine, or 10 are good, they're a great CI. If they give you 10 tips and one or two pan out, they're not that good. But just because a guy who used to give me nine out of 10 would be great. So uh, I told the boss, and he says, I'll be your partner. Let's set it up, and I'll work with you. So we had the deal where he was going to go buy. He was meeting the guy on a rooftop, right? So he the plan was that me and my partner, my boss, we were going to go on in the neighborhood. We, we scoped it out. We found all the buildings were connected by on the rooftops. There was a line of buildings. So we went in down the block, and we were going to hide and watch the transfer of the gun. Once the CI bought, got the possession of the gun, we were going to move in and make the collar, and we'd lock them both up. His would be a fake arrest. So we told him, you get the gun, and then we'll move in. You know, So that was the plan. So we go up on the roof. He goes in the building. He goes up to the roof. And as soon as we spot them, we knew first thing that was wrong, there was two perps up there, oh, right? Shit. So we thought there'd be one. Second thing was it wasn't a handgun. It was a rifle. So that's the second thing. And the third thing that goes wrong, the guy, before he get my my uh, CI gets the gun, before he buys it, the guy wants to show him it works. Yeah. God bless you. Thank he you. wants to show him that it works. So he leans over the roof and starts sniping, firing indiscriminately off the roof. Now we got no choice but to expose ourselves and race over to disarm him and stop him from shooting the public, right? So we jump up and we start jumping. If you know how the roofs are connected, there's a small like parapet or divider. You know, it's like maybe two feet high or something, three feet maybe the most. And we start jumping over these rooftops, running towards them. And he turns and fires the rifle at us once. So we both open up. And the first guy I shoot, he goes down. And my partner shot him too. We both hit him, right? But the other guy ran behind like, I think they call it a kiosk, but it was like, for your audience, it's it's like a chimney that's on the roof, even though it's a five-story walk-up, right? So I take I emptied my gun on the first guy, so I pull out a second gun, right? I always carried two 38s. The, the weird thing was this time I was carrying a, a 380. I wasn't supposed to be, but I'll tell you that part of the story. Uh, so I pull out this 380, right? <clears throat> and I go to turn, and the guy is behind this parapet. Right when I turn, he's like this with his arm raised with a knife in it, going to stab me in the head. I feel my finger tightening on the trigger, and all of a sudden I hear a shot, but I didn't pull the trigger. My boss came up behind him and shoots him in the back because he saw he was going to stab me, right? So he goes down, and the boss screams, get the gun from the first guy because the guy fell down and the rifle's laying there. So he screams, get the gun. So I go to pass the guy, and the guy leaps back up with the knife, right? So I shoot him with this 380 right in the stomach, and that kills him, right? And then I run around, I get the gun, and the first, and now radio cars are rushing to the scene because there's so many shots fired. We both emptied guns, and the perpetrator was firing, right? So cops are rushing up. We cuff up the two guys, the guy that shot, and we cuff up the CI, take him down and everything make it look like he got collared, and the other guy was dead. So uh, go to the grand jury, I get justifiable for that. And the 380, when I started to tell you I wasn't authorized to carry it, I just bought the gun the day before 
from my partner. It was a, a piece of shit 380 llama that my partner, one of my old partners was selling from the 4-1. Now I'm in the North Bronx in the 5-2 squad. So I took the gun to the, to the range, Olinville Arms. And the range was so crowded, I didn't get to shoot. So I was going to go back the next day, right? Because I was doing a day shift, and I was going to finish and go to the range. So I had that as my backup instead of my second. So IAD investigates the scene. They're, they go to Olinville Arms, and I'm signed in, and they told them I didn't get to shoot. And that's what saved me. I didn't even get charges or nothing. Wow. You know? wow. So here's the backup to that story. There's a follow-up story to that. Later on, about, I don't know, maybe eight, six, eight months later, I meet a girl on the street, right? Pretty girl, Spanish girl. And I was single. I'm dating like five, six girls and stuff. And run into this girl, and she was hot, you know. So we start dating, right? So I'm dating her for a while, and now it's getting to the point where she's inviting me up to her apartment. We're going to have sex, right? And, uh, you know, we're both excited about it. I wind up making a collar. So we didn't have cell phones back then. So I'm hardlining her, and I'm saying, you know, I can't come up. You know, I made a call. I don't know when I'm getting out. There was a lot of paperwork involved and stuff. So she's, like, really pissed, right? I said, I'll come the next day or in a day or two, you know? And she's pissed off. And, you know, we hang up. Next day, I go to court and shit, and I, I get back on the street, right? And we get a call, 10-2 forthwith. I look at my partner and I say, what do we do now, you know? We don't know what we did. You know, we're getting all kinds of complaints from the boss and stuff. So we go in and the squad boss is sitting there. And he turns to my partner. There's two two suits there, right? So we look at each other, me and my partner. We say, it's IAD for something, you know? And so they, I walk into the office and they tell my partner, you go back out, you know? So... Uh, I sit down, and they introduced themselves. They weren't an IED. It was intelligence division, a lieutenant and a detective. I said, oh, okay, what's up? Guy goes, oh, you uh, you know a girl named Lucy so-and-so? And I say, yeah. Now my head's spinning. I'm saying, how could they know my girlfriend? What the hell is it? I said, you had a date with her last night? I said, yeah. They said, well, she was playing. There were two or three guys in her closet, and they were going to kill you. I'm by head spin. Yeah. What are you talking about? They say, Yeah, they had two or three guys with guns in the closet and they were going to kill you because you killed her brother six months ago. I said, What? It was her wow. stepbrother I killed on that rooftop. And she was only dating me so she could say, Wow. Me. And they said their CI was a 10 out of 10 CI. But they couldn't lock her up because of two reasons. First, it's a he say he said she said situation. There's no tape. There's no evidence, and they would burn the CI, and the CI didn't want to burn because he was good, and they couldn't prosecute the case. DA probably wouldn't even take it in for charges. You know, it's someone said, you know, you know what I'm saying? It was hearsay, but that was the follow up. I had a girlfriend that wanted to kill me. Wow. Isn't that an amazing story that everything happens for a reason? You got that collar to save your exactly. life. That's amazing. Exactly. Now we had the yeah, it saved my life. It's it's hard to explain. It's God always watched over me. God was good to me. Uh guys would tell me, look at all the shootouts, and I was never shot. You know, I had one shootout that started three feet apart in a hallway with three of us. 
firing our guns. My partner was hit seven times. I wasn't hit at all, and I killed the perpetrator. And it was three, two of the wounds my partner got were ricochets. All the bullets were ricochets, and I still didn't get hit. And my last bullet I put in the guy, he ran right into me. My gun was pressed because I saved one bullet. I'm saying they always taught you try to count your shots. And I, I saved one, and he ran right into me. It was three feet and less. And I put the bullet right, the gun against his chest and fired. And uh, uh, the, the follow-up on that one was when the detectives went down to the morgue and stuff, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the uh, autopsy guy, he said, you have an execution here. This cop executed the perpetrator. And the detective said, no, he didn't execute him. He says, in all of his statements that I gave, I said he ran into me because they had powder burns on his skin and inside his skin that showed I pressed the gun. If I would have said I shot this guy from five feet away, I would have been arrested. But I told him what actually happened. And that's why he had no shirt on at the time. So the powder burns were in and on his skin. But if I would have testified differently, I would have been in trouble if I would have panicked. But I kept my sense of everything that was going on. I didn't panic. I, I, I don't know how why I handled it good. Uh, you know, all my shootings, I guess it was my training and mindset. It goes back to that. And, uh, you know, I did in those instances, uh, I did what had to be done and what I was trained to do. So my mindset was good. And that's what uh, I guess kept me mentally fit, besides physically fit, to handle the job that I was doing. 13 of those shootings were with people. Two of them were with dogs. And I'm a dog guy, but I had to shoot two dogs in the course Ralph, of the Ralph, you totally embody street justice, street warrior. Right? I mean, it's an impressive story. Thank God. Thank God. That story, that you got I, could that. Go on, I could go on uh, forever. And I thought I would be because I had a TV series, which is still playing now. Right now, I was moved to Amazon Prime. And just to plug the show, it's Street Justice, The Bronx. There's one season, six episodes. And we had... The producer had a complete room of postums of more stories I had from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, because we figured we'd be going on. Because I started on the Discovery Channel, and then I went to the ID Channel, and then now it's on Amazon yeah. Prime right now. And it's called Street Justice, the Bronx. Ralph, I got I a question for you. A, a website, if anyone wants to check out, is BronxStreetWarrior.com. Oh, BronxStreetWarrior.com. Bronx Street Warrior? Yeah, Bronx Street Warrior. Bronx Street Warrior. That's the uh, website. The book is Street Justice. I mean, the TV series is Street Justice, the Bronx. The website is BronxStreetWarrior.com. And the book is Street Warrior. Ralph, I got a question for you. So you were involved in 15 separate shootings. Yes. Let's compare the element, the politicians, the legislation, the police department, the justice system that you were a part of back then compared to now. How do you think the district attorneys and the politicians and the police department treated you as you were involved in these shootings compared to how the cops are being treated now? Well, I have to tell you, I was always treated very well uh, by the, the department, uh, politicians. Uh, that's what I'm saying, how the whole time frame, everything changed in today's world. But we were treated very good. The police were given the benefit of the doubt. Today, they all stick up for the perpetrators. And it's very frustrating to all police officers out there. But uh, 
I know how they feel, but they can't do the job they were uh, hired to do. But I was always backed up. Uh, obviously, I did everything correct in the way I was trained and lawfully, and that's why I wasn't arrested for any shootings or anything like that. I did what was had to be done. Uh, have no regrets about anything I did. I don't lose sleep about anything I've done. And we were respected. And uh, as long as you were able to articulate, which they taught us in the academy, on what you did and what the law is, and we obeyed the law and did acted correctly. We The other side of the coin of taking a life, which people don't understand, is that if you're justified, that means you saved a life. I saved my life. I saved my partner's life. Or I saved a civilian's life. That's what the only reason you're allowed to use deadly physical force. And that's what we did. And that's when it was used to save a life. So I don't look at it so much as taking a life. I save lives. And any officer that does a correct shooting is doing the same thing. Rob, you said you have over 200 complaints. So technically, you're the most complaint copier. We're going to switch your tag. But they're all unsubstantiated. But they're never all got charges or specs. Could could you just just describe for us what it was like when you went to CCRB? Well, first of all, CCRB was ran by the police department. They had real investigators. They had people that understood what you went through. I mean, some of them were street cops themselves, but they had a job to do. If you did something wrong, I mean, we were scrutinized heavily back then too. It wasn't just a wild west show. Anytime an officer used their gun or there was a serious injuries or death, you were investigated by numerous uh, units, the district attorney, IED, the detectives, shooting team. I mean, you were investigated thoroughly, uh, but they respected what they did because they hired you, trained you, and put you out there to do that. And the public wanted it. And as long as you acted uh, lawfully, you were backed up by everybody. You know, it's, uh, today... The, the civilian complaint board is ran by civilians that are cop haters, basically, to tell you the truth. You know, they're looking to get that cop. They want to nail a cop. They believe violent criminals. Police officers are responsible citizens that hold a responsible job, have families. You know, they don't go out all day pulling robberies and sticking up gas stations. This is what those criminals do. And then a criminal like that who has no credibility has no job, no responsibility. Uh, they're animals on the street, and they take their word for it over a, a cop. How, how is that? How is that logical? Rob, th during your time in the police department, you just said everything was heavily scrutinized, which I, it's always, I agree. Whenever you used a gun, it was if you, even if you missed a person, if you used your weapon, not if you took it out. That you always had your gun out. I know they got things today. They don't even want you to take your gun out. They don't even have nightsticks. That's right. My, my nephew is in a, a town in New York, not a, not New York City, please. But he, I met him the other, about a month ago. He was showing me they have a chip in their holster. If they pull out their gun, it automatically turns on a camera and a boss is notified. What is this? We had our guns. They would. We had our guns out more than it was in the holster. You pull over a, gun, a car, you got to have a gun out. Tell us about the discipline system that was in place when you were on compared to now, because now they have what's called a disciplinary matrix. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. If you can tell us 
You're not aware of it? Not the Matrix. I don't know what that is. Okay, so right now they have what's called the disciplinary matrix. The inception was January 2021. And cops can actually get terminated for various, various different uh, violations within the department if they have what's called aggravating factors. So if you're someone who has experience, you're a supervisor, you have time on the job, those would be considered aggravating factors to get you terminated involved in, in, in something, maybe a shooting or something like that. Can you tell us about the discipline system that was in place when you were on the job? Well, we had CCRB. There was IAD, Internal Affairs Division. There was another division of IAD, which I think it was called um, FIAU. That's like field associates. Uh, they, I mean, you know, I, I always believe they got to be checks and balances. You can't have cops going totally bad, like uh, the mob cops and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, you know, if you broke the law, you're still accountable, you know. Uh, we had a thing, they monitored you by uh, violence. We, uh, I spent my whole career on the violence prone list. You know, that was, that was what they, they had a violent prone list, but it was in the line of duty and I was dealing with violence and I just did more violence. We used necessary force to effect an arrest. But like I say, you have to know how to articulate and you got to be doing your job correctly. Now, thank you for that. Ralph, we see a lot of suicide now amongst the rank and file in the NYPD a lot. Did you, did you ever experience any of that when you were on the job? Any guys you work with or I had a, a friend who I was friends with before the job who came on the job, Nikki Costa, and he committed suicide. And I really don't know why. I mean, he had the world by the balls too. And uh, he was a good looking guy, young guy, a new police officer. Uh, I never knew I, he committed suicide. Uh, I had a friend of mine, I know why he committed suicide. A, a captain, uh, Doug Greenwood, probably about probably about four years ago, three or four years ago. No, about four years ago. But I know why he committed suicide. He had pain uh, that was unexplained from the World Trade Center. He was in. Uh, he was the XO of the Manhattan South Task Force, and he was there the first forty days. And he contacted something, and he couldn't. Uh, couldn't get rid of it. He went to doctors and high-profile doctors, uh, top-notch doctors, and they couldn't explain uh, uh, where he was getting this pain when he couldn't live with it. And he told me for a year that he was going to commit suicide. And he told me if I ever turned him in or mentioned it, that if he ever saw cops walking up to his house, he'd blow his brains out right there. And then he did it like uh, in a December four years ago. Um, just you know, out in um, Long Island, he killed himself. But he had unbelievable pain he couldn't live with. And he always told me, because we used to talk for like, you know, we would talk, he was a night guy too. We would talk like one, two in the morning for like an hour or two. And he always told me, he says, when I do commit suicide, I want you to tell everybody I was not depressed and I was not crazy. It was just like, you got to put your dog down because he's in pain. I got to put myself down. He says, just let, and this guy, was single. I knew the girls he was dating, beautiful women, very successful. He was a millionaire. Uh, he owned businesses. He was doing very well in the stock market. He got a, a, a big pension. He got a World Trade Center settlement. The guy was doing great, but he was sick like hundred, no, like thousands of other cops that did work at a 9-11 site, and uh, he had to pay the price. You know, but he did it on his own, on his own terms. And uh, 
He tried to correct it, but the doctors couldn't cure him. And I'm sure there's other horror stories like that all through uh, the fire department, the police department, EMS, all uh, first responders that had to work at uh, the Staten Island site or the uh, actual site, 9-11. Uh, there's horror stories. They're killing more people over the years than they did that day. You know, Ralph. every guy who, that was involved in there are heroes. Every man and woman that was there. Absolutely. Ralph, we talked about how we refer to the police department now, the upper management, as the weak appointed management. And we don't refer to them as leadership. Could you tell us about any leaders that you worked for in the police department and why they embody leadership and what you remember about them? I'll tell you, the best boss in the entire job was who's still alive today. He's in his low 90s, uh, Captain Tommy Walker. This guy, I worked for him as a lieutenant in the 41, and he came back as a captain in the 41. And this guy was the absolute best boss. I seen him <clears throat> take command. Everything he did, he did as a true leader, as a true leader. We once had a job. Two uniforms ran into a, a Black Panther, and they went to approach him in front of a building. And the guy pulls out a gun, and the cops start chasing him into the building. And they're running up a five-story uh, walk-up, right? And as they're going up the stairs, he's firing at them, and they're firing him. They're all missing each other, but they're shooting all through the building, all the way up to the roof. And they call it 1013. And as fast as this happened, this is happening in real time. And the boss, this captain, used to go out on patrol. He had a driver. He responded to the scene. And anyway, I would say they called a Division 13, which encompasses like three or four precincts. And I would say about 200 cops responded. And this captain jumped up on, he had a bullhorn. I don't know where he got the bullhorn, but he must have had one in the trunk. But this guy got on a bullhorn and commanded people, 200 cops surround the block and nobody could get out. And then he designated teams of guys to go into every, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, courtyard and backyard, alleyways, every alleyway to go into the backyard. It was the most amazing, it was like Patton. It was like, this guy was a Patton. And every cop listened to him. And you know how cops are in a 13. There's a lot of confusion and, you know, running around. This guy commit, it looked like ants, like everybody doing what they were supposed to do on an anthill. And he surrounded the neighborhood. Obviously, the, the one alleyway that me and two of my partners went in, that was the alleyway that the guy was in. He had a gun in his hand still. And I, I got to tell you, we tuned this guy up. This guy was 6'5" all muscle, 230 pounds, shaved head when it wasn't, when shaved heads weren't around. You know what I mean? This guy stood out. He was a black panther. We had to put this guy in the hospital. And when he got back to the precinct, he looked like an old railroad map. That's how many stitches this guy. I don't even think they were able to count them back then. It looked like his whole head went to a single solar machine, putting them together. But uh, we took this guy down. But it, the, this captain was the best command, and he would back his team. I'll tell you another time what he did. We get a call 10-2 to precinct, me and my partner. And I think this is where waterboarding was invented, to tell you the truth. But he calls us in, right? And he says, 
these feds, the feds were out on a job and they were making a buy, right? And you know the feds back in these days, they didn't do much. But they went on a coffee break when the undercover was making the buy and he gets robbed of $1,500. And that's like, that's probably like 150000 today, right? He gets robbed of $1,500 and his weapon. They call us in and the boss says, I don't care. This is Tommy Walker. I don't care what it takes. I want that gun and I want that shield back in this precinct tonight. I don't care what it takes. I said, boys, whatever it takes, what are you still doing sitting here? No matter what, I want the gun and shield. That's it. So we hit every social club. We take like 20 cops with us. We're making, I can't tell you how many guns and drugs we got. Every club we hit, there was tons of guns and drugs, but we didn't get the guy. But we kept turning in. Everyone would take collars. Every, all night, the precinct was packed, right, with collars. And then we finally get a lead. One guy gives up a guy. Wasn't even in our precinct. Now, I'm in anti-crime in the 4-1. You know, you didn't go outside your precinct. Now, not only did we go outside our precinct, they lead us to an apartment well, he led us to somewhere in the Bronx. We get that guy. He leads us to a, a, a building in Manhattan. We're still running around like, man, we hit this. We get up there and we wind up. The money is under the bed. The guy was cooperative. He was very cooperative when he happened to see us. I guess we had a way of talking. You know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so he gives Now we tell him, you got to get this other guy here. And there were no cell phones. We were using hardline. The guy calls the guy up, and when he got to the apartment, we sent all the cops away. We stayed in there. He comes up to the apartment, because, and now he decides he's going to talk to us. I guess we were pretty persuasive, you know? <laughs> so he takes us up on the roof, and we get the gun. But before that, before the guy gave it to us, the guy in the apartment, we took him back to the precinct, right? And before he gave us the Manhattan location, we had a stick. Well, we stuck his head in the toilet. And we kept flushing. I think that was where waterboarding was invented. But this was something the captain said. I don't care about the Constitution. We got to get the gun and shield back. You know? And we got the gun and shield. And we got the two perpetrators. And everybody was happy. We got a nice commendation. We got a letter from uh, the uh, the uh, federal agency. Don't want to mention the name. But uh, they all wrote us up nice and gave us letters on our folders. And... Uh, it was some night. I, there was, must have been a hundred collars. Nothing related to it. Just from hitting, uh, you know, social club. Just bursting in. Because those were clubs that dealt in drugs and they were selling illegal alcohol. And there was always good guys there with guns. You run in and they throw the guns on the floor. And the drugs are under the table or behind the counter. You know, you know the deal on social clubs in ghetto precincts. But that was uh, quite a night. But Tommy Walker, and he'd back us up all the way. He would go to CCRB. He would do anything. He back if you weren't, this guy was with you. He was the best boss. And any cop, he still comes to the reunions. And everybody celebrates him. He's a hero. They pick him. And he still lives in the Bronx, the guy. Great guy. And he wrote the forward to my book. You know, I asked him, and it was that was only about nine years ago. Uh, but when we first started, we asked him, uh, Cap, would you because uh, I'm still in touch with him. And he wrote a nice a great forward to me. He even remembered a story that I almost forgot. You know, there was a guy uh, shooting a gun on the street, 
and uh, we all raced up, and he saw me get out of the car, leap onto a car, and, and leap off a car. You know, I jumped up on the hood of a car and then tackled the guy with the gun. And he wrote that up for me as a, as a forward of my book. But he was, a, this is the kind of boss, and he'd be out there rolling in the street with you if you had a perpetrator too. He patrolled in uniform. He, he was a cop's cop all the way. Ralph, would you do to stay in? I mean, you're 75. You look like you look like you're 50 still. You look like you look better than most of the guys that are on the street right now. <laughs> Thank but would you. you would you do to stay in shape while you were on the job? And then and then oh, I worked out with weights all the time. I was a gym rat. You know, I always say I was into the four W's: working out, work, women, and wheels. Nice. You know, I had a motorcycle. I had a race car. You know. Uh, that's the four W's I was in. You know, that was it. Work, working out, women and wheels. But I, I always worked out. was into physical fitness. I took the academy training very seriously. I actually enjoyed it, except when we, they used to make us duck walk. Didn't care for that that much. But I always loved the, the handcuff training, the nightstick training, uh, tactics training. You know, I thought it was great. And one of the big tactics that saved my life which you'll see on any movie that it's wrong, you know, because you, you see every movie or TV show, they show a cop going in a building, or, you know, and they got a flashlight under their gun like this, and they go like this. So I tell you, one night we're driving, and it's like really late at night, right? This was one of my shootings, by the way. So uh, there were three guys walking down the street. We knew they were dirty. Uh, so we jump out of the car, and two, they all take off. And my two part, I was a three-man team. So my two partners go after these two guys, and I go after the one guy. And the one guy runs into an abandoned building, right? So uh, all of a sudden, I'm in the building. I take, I have a flashlight. And I take it out, and I put it out here. I don't know if you can see me on the video at this point. But I got it at arm's length. The guy, and they taught me this in the academy, the guy fires at the light, right? So I hear the bullet whiz by but he's aiming at the light. It's pitch black in this building, right? So at that point, I fire at the muzzle flash, and I hit him, right? And I hear the gun fall to the floor, but the guy ran away. And believe it or not, he got away. But ESU shows up. They bring in lights. They lit up this place like it was 3 o'clock on a sunny August afternoon, right? And there's the gun with the spent round that he fired at me, and there's blood all over. But he got away. And, of course... The detectives and everything hit all the hospitals in the borough and probably the adjoining borough, and we never got him. He didn't show up. Maybe wow. I didn't hit him bad enough, or maybe he got to a vet instead of a doctor, or maybe had a friend sew him up or whatever. But we never caught the guy, and I couldn't ID pictures really because it was a, you know, it was just people we saw on the street jumped out and they took off. It was like a flash. We knew they were dirty. Actually, my port my partners caught the other two guys, but they didn't give them up. And I think they were warning on war. They got them for warrants. They didn't have a gun unless they tossed it during the chase. But my partners caught the other two. We never got the other guy. But I knew a shot. I, I, I love there. Ralph, I can listen to your stories for days. They're so impressive. Let me ask you this. One other thing What's I want to tell you that I learned. In go ahead, family. go ahead. Uh, when you're involved in a shooting, well, here's what this is funny. I'm going to tell you. We get called to the range, right? And they tell us now, you know, for your qualifications, you got to do every year. And they uh -huh. tell us, 
we got high tech training now. We're going high tech, right? You're gonna <laughs> laugh at this because <laughs> so we get to the range, right? And you know how you used to stand there all by yourself and you just punch the gun out, right? This is the high tech they got. They put a mailbox, a parking meter, a, a parking sign, and an abandoned car. And they say, <clears throat> when you get into a guy, a shootout with a guy, we want you to hide behind the, one of these things. That was the high tech. Hide behind an abandoned car or a, a, a post mail, a box, mailbox. You know, compared to today with lasers and videos, and reality and all this stuff. That was what they called high tech. But another thing I learned was, well, if you're taking cover behind the car, you know, always stand where the wheel is because they'll spray under the car. They once did that. I responded to a shooting of a sergeant and a cop who uh, actually confronted the BLA right over the 4-1 line. And we responded to that 13, but they were already gone. But what they did, they took out a machine gun and they, the cops hid behind the car, but they were smart enough to hide behind the tires because they shot under the car. This is where they take out your ankles and you go down. So you always got to hide behind that steel rim and the tire because they, otherwise they'll get you. And that was the thing they taught us. And I actually saw it in play in the street with this sergeant and cop that were very smart and did that. Ralph, you policed at a time where technology was, was in a dinosaur age compared to now. Well, we How? Had most, my whole career, right. there was no cell phones. Beepers, uh, nothing of, of today. There's nothing. What is your perception of body cameras? And if you were a young Ralph Friedman now policing, would you prefer to have a body camera or would you not? I would not. I don't want to be micromanaged like that. You know, I don't even want to think of that. I have to think that I'm being filmed. Uh, you know, you hire a police officer, you do a background check. Uh, which was very thorough when I was on. They used to go to our teachers, our neighbors, our jobs. Today, they don't do any of that. They can't do that today because now they brag about hiring people in other countries that don't even have records. They come here, they're hiring almost, not illegals, but they're getting guys, they brag about, we got guys from 100 different countries. Some of those countries cannot provide proof and you can't send cops to go to their neighbors and their jobs and their teachers. I think the background checks were very thorough when I was on the... If I had a parking ticket, they broke your chops. You had to do write letters and get uh, uh, documentation. If you had a mover, it was a big deal. Today, they hire guys with misdemeanor convictions, uh, felony arrests, but knocked down to violations or something. Uh, I think it, they, the hiring stuff was much more. And you couldn't be from another country where they couldn't verify you. I mean, I don't think that's good. I mean, you well, might have some people, but it's a, it's a, a, a fish. You know, it's a you're taking the luck of the draw. Well, ultimately, what what do you think? Because we talk about mindset. What do you think your mindset would be strapped with a body camera in comparison to not having a body camera? Do you think that would affect your mindset? <clears throat> well, I believe today, being what I was through, I don't know if uh, we were indoctrinated that way. If it would have been different. Like today's officers are indoctrinated that way. It's like part of the academy, the training. It's they don't let's say they don't know better or they don't know different. We were brought up a certain way, and that was how you break in. You know, it's like training a puppy. A puppy knows nothing. It's blank, but it'll absorb 
like a sponge, what you teach it. Everything you do with a puppy is the first image, and that's what they know. It's just like in police work, what you're taught and how you go through it, that's what you know. I don't know anything about cameras. I wouldn't want to have a camera, but I'll tell you something about a camera. I guess in today's day and age, it might work because it shows, it proves the cops are right when these politicians try to show they're wrong. I was, I did a lot of bouncing work over the years, right? Well, after the police and after I healed up, it took me a couple of years to heal up. So I did some bouncing and I was working a door, a side door of a very popular club at the time. And, you know, they always try to get in on the side. And this girl came up and said, you know, let me in. I said, I'm not letting you in. You got to go on the line with everybody else. And she says, if you don't uh, let me in, I'm going to call the police and say you grabbed my breast. I said, well, tell you what, look up there. And I pointed to a camera on the building. And I, because my friend, my, the owner of the club had cameras out there. So I said, you see that up there? Call the police and I'm going to have you arrested for making a false statement. So yeah, that's what they should be doing today when people say stuff. Uh, like this uh, this guy, Yusuf Salam, made up a lie about police. And now the, cam, the body cam shows that the guy was lying. They should file a false report on him. You know? Or a, a lot of incidents where they accuse officers of stuff and the body camera proves they're innocent. You know, but back then they respected us and you were hired as a responsible person. You got to put some, you trust them with a firearm, you trust them to enforce the law and trust them to do the right thing and give them the benefit of the doubt. But today everything's micromanaged and it's cameras and they're looking to hang the cop. So I guess today maybe the, co the cameras are helping the cops in a way, you know, because they can't do anything and people make false allegations and the body camera is going to save them. And it shows when cars intentionally run them over uh, and all these things that are being done to police officers. It's, it's just something they use to protect themselves today, I guess. Ralph, we asked, we got to, we got to, you know, obviously we have a ton of retired guys come on. We always ask two questions to them. Would you come on again at the time that you did? Would I come on the job when I did? Yeah. Would you do it I again? I love the job. I wish I could do it today. Would you come on now? Well, if no you, job if you, were, me if you were 19, 20 again, would you come on again? In this now, in these this day time, and times? This time. No, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Not what I know now. You know, I there's so many cops on Facebook, men and women who were cops, who tell their kids, they tell them now. They, uh, I was just reading one last night. He said, my one of my kids is a nurse and one is a... Uh, a teacher, and I'm proud of them. And he, he said it was from a line of officers, NYPD officers, and I'm glad they didn't take the job. I, so many people wouldn't recommend it to their offspring and continue, continue a tradition, you know. And anyone who asks me, I tell them, if you want to be in law enforcement, take a, um, you know, county job or a, or a federal job or a state trooper job. The inner city policing is finished. You know, they're looking to hang you. You take that job, you're going to lose your job or you're going to lose your benefits, you're going to lose your pension. You might lose your house and your freedom and your family. You know, they're looking to hang cops. You know, it's uh, it's terrible. It's bad conditions today. I believe that the pendulum will swing back, you know, at some point. We just need enough politicians to get mugged and robbed. <laughs>
and rape, and then the, the laws will change. Not change. You know, the laws are good. They just got to be enforced. You know, I, I'm super impressed on how how witty are you are and how you're abreast on what's going on with the police department. You could make these intelligent comparisons from before to now. And that is a problem, Thank John, you. I have talked about with, absolutely, with the recruitment process. Part of an excellent recruitment process is having a deity. When you were on the job, you had, you had men that had their fathers on the job, their grandfathers on the job, their cousins, their uncles. It was a deity. Now, part of the recruitment problem is we've lost that deity. I would not tell my son or daughter to become a cop, and most people wouldn't because the environment that is now. So we're, we're losing that. We're losing that entire brotherhood. Well, this, like we said, the trickle down from the bosses and the politicians is they want they want to fill quotas. They say, you know, to me, there's no black and white. It's blue, you know. And I say anyone who has the <clears throat> right qualification should get the job. I've had black partners. I've had Spanish partners. I've had white partners. Uh, they've all been great. I got to say, everybody I work with made my career possible, and they were great, you know. But they today they say you got to hire, you know, X amount of black, X amount of Spanish, X amount of uh, Indian, or whatever Chinese. It, you got to hire quality. You don't want to do that with surgeons. You don't want to go get surgery, and they say, oh well, we hired him not because he's a good doctor or a good surgeon, but we had to get a certain amount of numbers of ethnicities. That's wrong. And I think if I don't if I remember correctly, if I remember I think Adams, when he was around, there was a quota system. Uh they used to give more points or take points off white guys and give more black guys. There was a quota system. There were quota promotions. Right? Am I right? And I know that he stole a test once too. You know, and he started that uh, hundred blacks in law enforcement which was very, uh, you know, racial thing. You know, these politicians and bosses, they, they do more to divide us than unite us, which they should be doing. You know, and, uh, you know, I think Biden is a disaster, but I want to see our president do good because I'm American. We want our presidents to do good, all of them. You know, but, you know, it is what it is. You know, everybody has agendas today. Ralph, what do you think, like, so... NYPD is now saying they're going to pull back on allowing cops to wear beards and they're going to be more strict with the uniforms. But at the same time that they're doing this to fulfill a quota system, again, they're now allowing cops to change their genders and they're allowing to, them to identify as non-binary. What do you think about those two things? And what do you think the police department should be focused on to avoid seeing our police officers get attacked out there in the street? Okay, the answer to the second question, the uh, yeah. binary or transgender. Look, I'm old school. There's two genders, man and woman. That's it. That's it. And if anyone, if a, someone, guy, thinks he's a girl, a good swift kick to the nuts and let him know who he is. You know? <laughs> but uh, there's two genders. And, uh, there's, there's nothing can change that. You know, there's something uh, with a mindset what they have. It's something wrong, in my opinion. And the other question was, uh, what was the other question again? The, the beards. Oh, the, the beards. Okay. beards. <clears throat> in my promotion picture, uh, I think you'll see me with a, a beard. 
the times you saw me with a beard and uniform, it was because I was anti-crime. And then I got promoted. So I was, but in uniform, I believe uh, we were very strict on how high, low your sideburns could be. No mustaches below the lip. I believe that we should all look the same and be, uh, we're a semi-military outfit, the police department. And everybody should be dressed the same. You know, it also commands respect. You have guys coming in all the, I, I don't believe in the beards and uh, the turbans. If you're that religious and you feel you got to wear a turban, then you shouldn't take this job. The job has requirements and you got to stick to them. You know, that, I think I think that's how it should be. I think it should. everybody should be falling in line and uh, be presentable. I think you get more respect if everybody's clean cut. You know, that's the the image you pro, uh, project. I'm old school, you know. Some pictures they'll see of me in uniform with a beard, but that's because I was anti-crime and I just put on a uniform for the day, you know. But when I was in uniform, man, they were very strict. Man, you get inspected. That's You get inspected. They got to show you your shoes. And all the uniforms were the same. Not baseball hats, not cargo pants. You know, you look, we were a police force. Today it's called a uh, member of the service. We were a police force. Today it's a police department. I remember they came in and changed all the names. They paid some guy a ton of money just to change the name. IED was IEB and IEB was IED. They just changed everything. And we were patrolmen. Now it's uh, police officers. When we say, when they changed the name on us, we used to say, it means pissed on, <laughs> you know. But uh, we were hired as PTLs. Now it's PLs. You know, but we were a member of the force, and it was a police force. You can't use that today. It's a member of the service and police department. Things were changed. Uh, things have changed immensely. You know, tell us also, there's this whole diversity, equity, inclusion push to change the makeup, the general makeup of the appearance of the police department. Was the police department, when you were working, any less or any more diverse than it is now? What are the comparisons that you see? And did it make a difference on the brotherhood of the cops and the ability for them to police the streets of New York City? Let me tell you, the cops was so tight back then. The camaraderie was, it, you felt such a part of something. And no, I, I, you know, people always ask, they always say, Jews are not really a, a profession. But, you know, not cops aren't a profession for Jews. And they always thought there was very few Jews. But the numbers really stayed the same. The numbers have been like 2,500. There's usually, uh, I joined the Shamram Society immediately. I was approached by a Jewish officer and the thing. The numbers have been the same. But I think we were so tight then. You know, I, I don't think we looked so much. A lot of people say they didn't discriminate me against me because I was able to handle myself. I was in shape, and they saw the way I handled prisoners and stuff. They said, oh, maybe they didn't bother you because you were like a tough guy and stuff, you know. But I didn't see any discrimination. I didn't see racism. I didn't see uh, – I worked with all, all different guys, and everybody was great. And the, the uh, camaraderie was terrific, at least in a precinct that I worked in, like I said, like a shit house or an A house or a busy house or a ghetto house, whatever you want to call it. But the camaraderie was incredible. You know, it was just incredible. You know, I, I don't know if it's like that today. I, 
you know, I, I do feel there is a difference. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, were there jokes and words said? Yeah, but not intentionally and not uh, to hurt somebody, more of a joke. You know what I mean? It, you know what I mean, because you were out there. It's, it, still uh, happens. it still happens. They just pretend. Yeah, but that's that joke stuff. It's always exactly. going to be said, you know. Because everybody's having fun. Your friends, right? Like that's exactly. What you, you can't tease your friend. <laughs> yeah. People I make fun of are the people that I'm close to. You know, we tease each other. Absolutely. If I don't like you, I don't say much. Yeah. You know, I'm quiet. If you that's absolutely that, right. You you make fun of your friends to their face, and then behind their back, exactly. that's what he talks good about them, them right? That's yeah. Right. That's exactly right. Your real friends are the ones that talk good about you or stand up for you behind your back. Absolutely. So you, you spoke a lot about the warrior mindset. And now today in the police department, they want guardians. They're like, we don't want one. If you hear, hear them refer to cops, they refer to them as guardians. We need a guardian. We don't want any more of the warriors. Yeah, except when they're in trouble. Then they want a cop. You know? Exactly. Exactly. You know, and all the ones who want to defund the police or hate the police, you smack them in the face, they'll be the fastest ones to call 911. You know, it, it's a joke. It's a joke. They, they just cop hate. A lot of them back then when I was on, there was always people that hate cop. A lot of them were people that were jealous or couldn't make the police. They couldn't qualify. So they hated us because they couldn't be us. What about as far as off duty? Like how we are treated as like a cop off duty? Like what? Like in the neighborhood? Well, oh, in the neighborhood or as yeah. on the police force? Because like, I got out they, with. A, like, with were, a, were you proud to tell people you were a police officer? Well, like I'm always proud. I wear I wear police shirts all the time to this day. There's yeah. nobody going to intimidate me about that. I'm proud of being blue. You know, and I'm proud to put my book out there, my show, my website. I'll stand up for police all the time. I made a couple of collars, not collars, but I helped cops a lot of times since I've been retired. And one of them I thought I was going to really get beat up bad because uh, there were two girls made a, a car stop and these guys got out and started fighting the girls. I ran right over there and got into the fight. And, uh, and when the cops responded to the 13, I heard them coming with the sirens and stuff. And I said, man, I know I'm going to get hit with a, with a nightstick. You know, I, I, I felt I was cringing up, but I couldn't back up or run away. And, and then all the cops knew me anyway. I was lucky. It was in Manhattan, but the cops knew me. So, because I was bouncing in that area. So it was pretty good. You know, I, I didn't get hit. But I, I felt it coming, but I couldn't stop what I was doing because I was helping two officers. Wow. And, you know, and when being off duty, uh, being off duty, retired, and been working in plain clothes, and then as a detective, we were always taught to respect the uniform at all times. You know, so uh, you know that's how I was trained. You know, we, you just train that way. Uniform always has priority over a plain clothesman. You know. Well, Ralph, what do you think about this? So this has been something I, John, and I talk about. So the police department as a whole was respected by the public and the violent perpetrators. But we believe even during our time, and I'm going to ask you about your time, that there were men and women that didn't really cut the cloth, but they were able to get by because the majority of the police department was a masculine police department prepared for violence. But now because they're not prepared as a whole, these guys are getting exposed. 
would you agree or are, are you saying that everyone when you worked had that grit or were there some guys that kind of skated by because the overall majority of the police well, department was respected overall the police department was respected uh most guys were really good cops and then they were great cops uh but there was some what we used to call house mouse or you know the broom there were guys that avoided some work they you know there were a lot of cops that were good cop great cops but didn't want to go to court they would get collars and give them away um but i in the four one which was a very active precinct the majority of guys were, were really good cops. I, I consider myself exceptionally lucky and to have the career I did because I broke into a precinct like that and I had these great cops teach me. But, you know, civil service uh, is a kind of job where you could do nothing for 20 years and get away and you could be very active and do your thing like I did, uh, you know, and be very active and have a great career. But uh, in the 401, there were a lot of tough, good cops. And even the ones who didn't want to make collars or go to court, they did police work in the street, but gave it away. Ralph, I just want to get your opinion on the Daniel Penny incident. Well, the Marine. What a shame. See now. They and don't... Do you think that would have happened back in your day? Do you think he no, would have been? Absolutely not. No, he told, he had a, a credible story. He, he did a great thing. There were tons of witnesses. There were also, I think, two other civilians that assisted him, holding the guy down for the police uh, to come. You know, uh, I think he did a great job. He's a he's a hero. You know, he, you know, you talk about being the training on the police and stuff. <clears throat> a lot of guys that went into the police in my time, besides being military guys, which are trained and disciplined to begin with, there were guys like me. <clears throat> I consider myself disciplined because I watched what I eat and I worked out. So I had some discipline and I had a good upbringing from my parents and I followed the law. I mean, I did street stuff, but I, when I say street stuff, I got into some fights, but I never used a weapon. I never robbed anybody. You know, I did, you know, kid stuff growing up on the street, you know, but never even entered my mind or any of my friends or anything to have a gun or a knife and uh, a pry on uh, decent citizens or something like that. Never. I had a, the cops brought me in a couple of times for fighting in the street. And the, the funny thing is, I used to say to them, I'm on the list. I'm on the list. So they give me like a, a JD card, juvenile delinquent. But it meant, didn't mean nothing. And it wound up, after I made detective, after five years on the job, I went back to that my, my precinct where I grew up, and I worked with those two cops that brought me in. That's funny, right? Yeah, absolutely. Can't make this stuff up. But they knew me in the street because I, I was racing my car, had a couple of street fights, but no weapons and none of the crazy stuff you, you hear about. You know, Daniel Penny was a hero. And they don't lock up people for the rioting and stuff. And so they locked up that uh, that other guy uh, in the bodega. Who, the guy attacked him behind the counter. He had to flee the country now. He moved back. What he went through... It was a public outcry that got him out of jail. That made, you know, his brag. He doesn't enforce any laws. I was just reading that this guy's got tens of millions of dollars in homes and yachts within all within five years. How'd that happen? You know, this is what you're up against. Ralph, all three of us have a lot in common. We all did anti-crime as cops and as bosses. Anti-crime was disbanded post-George Floyd. 
during the George Floyd riots, June 15th, Absolutely ridiculous. There you go. I just want to hear yeah, from heavy you. Heavy hitters that went out there and got the guns, and they dealt with the violent criminals. Obviously, they're going to have more shootings and stuff because they're more involved. It, it comes, you, if you do 100 things, you got to come into the shooting. You, you, it's ridiculous disbanding anti-crime. It was one of the best tools they had. And then they cut down stop and frisk or stop question and frisk, whatever. We used to call it stop and frisk. But you, 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 those are the best tools you have and the best cops you have. And they're taking it away. They're, they're trying to cut the police department. And each little step, like look at what they just passed in the last week where they got to do this. I never heard of these level stops. But they got, if a cop talks to you, you got he's got to do another report. They already got the body cam. What do you need a report for? They document in the books. Uh, well, they don't use books. They use cell phones. But now you got a, a form for stopping a car, a stop for using force, a stop for talking to somebody, a stop for a form for farting, a form for this, a form for that. But the, how are you going to do police work? They're turning them into secretaries. They don't want police work. They want you to be reactive, not proactive. It's another world. I feel bad for the men and women out there. They, you know, the only thing they got going for them is there's the pay is better today. The pay is very good. And there's a ton of overtime. Every day there's a riot somewhere. Someone, they're, they're cutting down the amount of cops. They're not hiring the amount of numbers that we used to get hired in my time. Uh, there's no 15 or 2,000, 2,500 classes. The classes are five, six, seven hundred. And they're very infrequent. And, uh, they almost tried to cancel the classes. Now they brought them back again, they say. But uh, guys are retiring in record numbers. Guys are quitting in record numbers. Uh, they once shut down about a year ago. I think they shut down the pension se section. They wouldn't let you retire. You couldn't put in the papers for three years or so, uh, three months. You know, uh, guys are getting injured every single day. You know, the line of duties and stuff. The numbers are dwindling. And they're do doing everything to cut down the police. They don't want police, these politicians, until they get mugged. Then they want all the police. Ralph, the incident we just had on in Times Square where the lieutenant and the cop get beat up by the illegal aliens. Yes. Yeah. Why didn't they have nightsticks? They should have tuned those guys up. Boy. They stole that cop. They stole one of the cops' phones, too, which they don't say. Yeah, so that's I, no, they, they was, I read something. It was, one of them was charged with a robbery, but it doesn't mean nothing. They want Adams wanted, and Bragg wanted to make Armed robberies a misdemeanor. Rob a commercial establishment a gun. They wanted to make it a misdemeanor. There must be cops rolling over in their graves. So, yeah. so for that arrest, they they get the they arrest this they arrest these guys right. They arrest the illegal aliens. Bragg doesn't request bail on the arrest. Right, and now they got on a plane. They got they're in California. They're yeah, they, they, they gave California. fake IDs and they're gone in the wind. They flee to California, but this morning... I think I got a better chance of winning the lottery than them showing up in court. Oh, absolutely. And that's for <laughs> most people, too. But this morning, <laughs> the, the police commissioner, Edward Caban, puts out a joint statement with Alvin Bragg saying that they have a great partnership and they work hand-in-hand. Hand. What, what do you total, think about that? That's total <laughs> bullshit. Well, first of all, every DA... They should be fired for not doing their jobs. They, they're not supposed to have opinions. They're not supposed to make up policy. They're paid to prosecute criminals for the people of the state of New York. They're not doing their jobs. Fire them all. You know, 
Ralph, I'm so glad what you said before because it solidifies everything John and I have been saying and you validated. Why? Because you were part of a police department or what you said before, a police force as patrolmen that embodied camaraderie. It was a brotherhood. You guys loved it. Absolutely. You said you would have stayed forever if you didn't get injured. And yet now you have pointed out the cops make more money. They have a better quality of life because they have more money. They're getting more all the time. They have a chance to have more money. And yet most of these guys can't even make it to 10 years on the job, five years, 15 years, because they're leaving. So we have all proven that money is not the most important factor. It's everything else to be a cop. Money is important, but it's not the first thing. We have City, all validated that. New York City has the best training. All these other departments, I see ads all the time. Tennessee, Florida, they give you signing bonuses like an athlete. And they want to pay for your travel. And like a $10,000 bonus to come to Tennessee and be a cop. They love that New York City's training them. They go to Nassau, they go to Suffolk, they go to other states. It's uh, NYPD is a very, it's the most respected police department in the world. We just happen to know the inner workings and what's going on, how they're disseminating it. And it's just a shame. It's a shame. But it's still respected. They make TV shows about it. They make movies about it. It's a no, no. They sell tourists come into Manhattan. They got stores that are selling NYPD shirts and sweatshirts and hats. NYPD is very famous, you know, and uh, it's just a shame what's happening to it. It's a shame. I, I feel really bad about it. You know, it hurts me. It turns my stomach when I watch some of these videos. You know, I get physically sick because I know what would have happened in my day and most of your day. Ralph, did we miss anything? Anything you think that the audience should know about you, your life, your career? Um, any anything that that uh, we haven't asked that you think that's an, that's important to highlight, or an, or anything you want to leave? Well, to I enjoy. I love being being a police officer. I thought it was the greatest job in the world, and uh, I couldn't wait to go to work. I I did a lot of stuff, and I was proud of it. And uh, when I became a detective, <laughs> this is a funny story. When I went down to the promotion board, I made a big mistake because they said to me, how would you feel if we left you in anti-crime as a detective? And I said, man, I would love that. So the next day, of course, I'm in the squad, you know, and I, I didn't get along with detectives. I had fistfights with the detectives in the 401. We, you know, detectives, a lot of times back in my day, they would sit in the office. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. You know what a squawk box is? Nah. Yeah, I talk to cops all the time. They have no idea what this is. But a squawk box is uh, it, it's a speaker in the uh, detective division, and it sits on the wall. And you could hear all the, all the transmissions, everything on the radio outside. They called it a squawk box. So the detectives were here. Uh, uniform got an arrest, an arrest for murder or a rape, you know, big something big. They would race out. And then try to put their cuffs on the guy. We get into that's where the term, I guess, fisticuffs came up. You know, not only fighting a perp to put him in cuffs, but to keep your cuffs on him from a detective stealing your collar. You know, okay, kid, we got it from here. You know, one of those. So I didn't want to work with detectives, but it worked out for me. You know, but uh, I wanted to be anti-crime my whole life, and I, I I loved it. You know, I even made arrests off-duty. I got out with 105 off-duty arrests. 
everything from petty larceny to double homicide. You know, I made off duty. Wow. How many arrests? Rob, you okay, okay. I made over 2,000 arrests in my name. I assisted in over five, 6,000 arrests, but I made 105 off duties. Wow. You know, and the, you know, some bosses looked at me like I was nuts, but uh, they understood, you know, one boss didn't even want to talk to me because I had a shooting in Manhattan off duty. And he said to me at the time, he said, oh, how many shootings have you ever been in? I said, oh, I've been in nine already, you know, at that point. He said, nine? I'm not talking to you. Let's call a duty captain. I don't want to talk to this guy. I don't want to talk to him, you know? <laughs> you know, in that shooting, uh, I was off duty. This is pretty funny. <clears throat> I was down, went out with a girl, had a lot of incidents with girls with me, you know? So I went, uh, I was downtown, and I think I was walking around in the village and stuff with this girl, and we were going to go out to uh, Queens to meet my brother in a place called, it was Connecting Highways, where a lot of racing was going on, right? And I was on a motorcycle. I had a Holy, holy Chopper, and I'm riding up, and I was waiting way in advance. I was ahead of time to meet him. I was early. So I said to this girl, we pulled over on the East River Drive to uh, one of those emergency parkings, like one or two cars could fit. So I pulled in there with my motorcycle <clears throat> and it was 78th Street that led, there was a walkway on 78th Street and East River Drive that led you over the highway onto like uh, the street there, 78th Street. So we pulled over and we sat down on a park bench overlooking the water there. We started making out and stuff. And uh, three guys walk up. I see three guys coming up on us. So I say to the girl, listen, uh, I was wearing a belly band that had a, a gun in it. You have a gun, a belly band holster when you ride a motorcycle. So I said to her, listen, if these guys come over to us and start anything, just hit the floor, you know? So I was making, making like I'm making out with her and, you know, but I'm keeping my eye on them, right? And they come up and they walk around and they sort of look me over. And I was really well built then. I was covered with tattoos. I had motorcycle boots on, jeans, and a t-shirt. And right, and they see what I look like. And they left. And they started to go about 100 feet away to where this walkway headed north. So you could see the whole walkway, the ramp that went up. And then it turned left going over the highway. So there were some people at the bottom of the walkway. So I said, and I see them engage in conversation. And now they leave them and go up the walkway and engage another two or three people on the top of the walkway. So I, I say, I'm going to go talk to those people. So I left the girl and my motorcycle and I go over to them and they say, they're like in tears and they start crying and say, they just robbed us at gunpoint. I said, oh shit. So I run up and I get to the people at the top and they, I say, what's that? What, what's up? And they say, they just robbed us, those guys. So I start to chase him over the walkway and the guy turns and fires at me and I fire at him. I had nowhere to duck or go. The walkway is only like three, four. And they get to a car that's sitting there waiting for them. And the car drives up. And meanwhile, this girl got to a phone somehow and she calls uh, 9-11 and tells them a good description of me. So I, I go up and I fire a couple of shots at them. They fire at me. And they jump into this car and they get stuck in a light at the next stop, the next avenue, I think it was York Avenue or something. Anyway, they get up there and there's a traffic light. I'm running, trying to catch this car and the light changes and they turn right, go north, right? And it's not far from Gracie Mansion either. So I, I jump into a yellow cab 
And back then, they didn't have partitions or nothing. And the guy sees me all tattooed, sweaty, gun in my hand, and I'm screaming, police, follow that car. He doesn't hear me at all because he's all shaken up. And he takes, they used to have cigar boxes with all the money there. And so he throws the cigar box in the back. I'm getting covered with bills and change. And he's like, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. I said, I'm a cop, I'm a cop, chase that guy. And then, you know, he didn't go, no, he froze. And they got away. So I go into the precinct, you know, I get over there. And I'm talking to this captain and I'm telling him the whole story. Meanwhile, there's, there's only me. I'm there with a smoking gun, telling them I shot it out two, three guys. They got away. No witnesses, no victims, no nothing. I'm in there like an hour and a half until I get a duty captain because this guy didn't want to talk to me after I tell him that I was in nine or ten shootings. And the captain comes in and they interview me. I tell him the story. Now I'm heading out after two hours. And as I'm walking out, all of a sudden, the five people come in, the victims. They, oh, that's the cop they shot at. He tried to catch the guys that robbed us. And now we had to start all over again. Now we got five witnesses. They got to interrogate each one. And now at least I had some credibility. They said, oh, they shot at him. He shot back. You know, now I got some credibility. You know, They didn't think I was some fucking nut running down the highway, you know? So, so that all worked out. We didn't catch the guys. Uh, they gave it to the detectives. And I don't know whatever happened after that. They did a 49 on me. And that was it. You know, they sent them probably the photo unit and followed up. The detectives got the case on that part. You know, and that was it. You know, Ralph, it's been an honor. It's been a privilege to hear your stories. I think you are so sharp. And I tell you what, I would love, or I would have I loved. I could go on forever, believe me. I would I love to work with you, to roll with you. I think we'd have a great time. You think just like we do, we all have the same mindset. I am super well, I knew impressed. That it's been as soon as I spoke to John, on the phone once or twice before this started. I knew we all thought the same. We're on the same level here. And then uh, when uh, I read your stuff, you know, when John told me to go check you out, and I, I said, oh, these are three cops, man. And it's my honor to be on your show. Thank you for having uh, me. I, I love these stories. And I, what's so impressive is how you recount these stories and the details that you still remember. Uh, and you look fantastic. I, I want to thank you for everything that you've done what you embody, you embody the warrior spirit. And I do believe eventually there has to be a seismic shift. There has to be. If there doesn't, we're going to completely lose the police department. We need the masculinity the that we're talking too. about. The whole lose city. The whole city it, really, it really does. Uh, Ralph, I want to thank you. It's almost two hours here. Thank you so much for giving us your time, telling us your story. I'm super impressed. Before John speaks for a moment, please plug all your information. Tell everyone where to find you. Tell them what to read. Tell them where to watch you on TV. Let everyone know the world needs to see Detective Ralph Freeman. Uh, the TV series is Street Justice, The Bronx. It's now playing one season, six episodes on Amazon Prime. The book is Street Warrior. Actually, I meant to tell you, the book was co-written by my co-writer, uh, uh, Pat Piccarelli, who is a retired New York City lieutenant, who was very active himself. He was a TPF cop. So that tells you right there what kind of cop street cop he was and he became a sergeant obviously uh because he became a lieutenant too and that was my co-writer book of street warrior by ralph friedman and pat piccarelli that's available on amazon and my uh, website is bronxstreetwarrior.com and uh thank you very much for having me john and eric really appreciate it you guys are great 
No, yeah, we loved it. And I'm, I know the audience loved it. So, guys, I'm going to put links for the book, the TV show. You can see that on the bottom of the screen, the, the website's below. So, you know, please, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to read. I, know, I haven't read your book. I apologize for that. I'm definitely going to read that book. Uh, There's I, some I, great I, stories in there, but I got yeah. a lot of others. And you know, and, you know we'd reason... love to have you back on, man. I mean, honestly, you oh, you could you could have you could have come back on. Yeah, you could have co-hosted the show with us. I mean, honestly, <laughs> everything you said really like it really it really the same stuff we talk about. It's crazy. You you kind of if you listen to our past shows, a lot of the things that you said we have said. So it's wild. Well, it's logical. It's sensible, and you know we're talking realistic here. That's how it is. You know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and guys, just, uh, you know, so it, it was a pleasure. It was an honor. We'd love to have you back on. And, um, you know, as always, guys, uh, like we always say, you know, you got to secure your financial future. So please, uh, if, you, if, you, if you're going to retire, you're looking to retire, you don't have a financial advisor, just give our friends at Laid Law Blue a call. Ralph, hang out with us for a second. Let us finish. We just want to talk. Law enforcement professionals dedicate their lives to serving and protecting our community. But who's protecting their financial futures? That's where Laidlaw Blue comes in. Our wealth management platform is specifically designed for the law enforcement community. Laidlaw Blue is a division within Laidlaw Wealth Management run by retired New York City detective John McDermott. His status as a retired detective uniquely positions him to establish a deep connection between Laidlaw Blue and the law enforcement community. Our platform is easy to use and provides a range of financial services, including investment management, retirement planning, and insurance solutions. With Laidlaw Blue, you can secure your financial future and provide for your loved ones. Our team of experienced financial advisors understands the unique challenges and opportunities that law enforcement professionals face. We're here to help you navigate the complexities of financial planning and achieve your goals. Laidlaw Blue, secure your financial future today. Book a meeting using the QR code displayed or call us directly on 888-901-BLUE. That's 888-901-BLUE.